have four chapters in Malachi, and we will have completed our study in the, in the uh, what they call the minor prophets. As I've said on many occasions, there's no such thing as a minor prophet. So uh, every bit of this word, uh, of this Bible is God's word. We believe that, the inspired word, and Malachi is no exception. And you can read this book of Malachi, and it, it's certainly... Uh, Somebody could have wrote it yesterday, and, and you would believe it because that's how much application it has, uh, not so much to Israel, but to the church and to each one of us as individuals. Uh, we'll just pick up there in verse number one, and we kind of get an introduction here. We don't really know anything about Malachi, so we kind of, uh, other than that he was a prophet, because you look at verse number one, and it says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, there's... The reason this book is dated so late in the Old Testament and it's listed as the last book in the Old Testament isn't that we have some kind of date or we're given some kind of king here that uh, uh, Malachi served or uh, we don't have people named like Zerubbabel and Joshua. Most scholars believe uh, he came a little bit after Zechariah and Haggai and the reason they come up with that uh, is because it is the last book in the Bible. Uh, also, uh, there's a mention of the Persian king in the book, and, and uh, so it's in the days of Persia, so sometimes after the Babylonian captivity, and that's really all they have to date the book. And we, again, we really don't know anything about Malachi. You know, people want to say he's Italian and say it's Malachi, but we know better than that. It's Malachi. Uh, we do know what his name means. It means my messenger. And he was a messenger of God, just like all the other prophets. And he had a message. And what was his message? His message was the burden of the word of the Lord. He had a burden. Now, who had the burden? Malachi didn't have the burden. The Lord had the burden. And the Lord wanted to get that burden off his chest. There was something bothering him. And he wanted to tell the people of Israel what was bothering him. Uh, and uh, so he chooses Malachi. And Malachi comes to these people and, and uh, he gives... Uh, this message, this great message. I really think Malachi's uh, got a message that's so uh, contemporary uh, to any age that uh, it's really an important study for, for, I believe, every church should take a, you know, a, a, some time and spend in Malachi, especially in the day in which we live. Uh, some say that Malachi was the last messenger uh, from God to the people of Israel and to the world until John the Baptist came on the scene. Well, I don't, I don't buy that at all. We talked about that before. In fact, I might have said that in my past days of teaching, but I don't believe that. I don't believe God has ever quit speaking to this world. And uh, he was the last Old Testament prophet. So it was the last inspire, inspired word uh, to be recorded that became part of the canon. But I believe there were other prophets who were speaking to the people throughout their history, even this 400 years gap between Malachi and and Matthew, and, and most scholars believe this was written somewhere around 400 B.C. Uh, but God is always speaking, and he always speaks through his word. And so just because Malachi, uh, just because there wasn't a recorded prophet after Malachi doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking. God had spoken really everything he wanted to say at that point. And so we, he didn't have anything else recorded in the Old Testament because he had said what he needed to say. But that didn't mean he wasn't speaking. Because I don't know about you, but the Old Testament still speaks to me. God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And 
And I don't know how many times, I can't count the times that I've been in the Old Testament and God has, uh, the pages have lit up and God has spoken to me just as clearly as a bell right out of, uh, out of every one of these books at one point or the other. Uh, so, so God is still speaking. He was speaking in that day. But this is the last recorded uh, uh, part of the Old Testament that we have uh, before uh, Matthew in the New Testament. Now, the book of Malachi is, is a very interesting book. It's almost a humorous book because God's being very sarcastic with the people and he, and he writes the book, uh, and then God is the one really writing the book, but he writes this book in the form of a diatribe between God who loves the people and this obstinate, rebellious people who don't really love God. And so God raises this question and they answer the question and then they raise the question. It goes back and forth and, it's, and it is. It's sort of humorous and, and sarcastic on both sides. But God's speaking for the Israelites, and the reason he can speak for the Israelites is because he knows their heart. Just like he could speak for you if he wanted to, because he knows exactly what's in your heart and what's in my heart. So uh, when we, we get this diatribe, and it's really interesting, and through this process of this diatribe, we, again, we hear the heart of God. Uh, we see the state of most people, most people who call themselves children of God. And, and uh, there's a real rebuke here for all of us if we listen to this carefully and if we open up our hearts and and uh, let God examine our hearts and see where we stand in this process. So, so pick up in verse number two, and, and you kind of get the theme of this book. The theme of the book is God loves you, but do you love God? And then God's going to test you on that. That's the theme of Malachi. You want to take the test whether or not you love God? Read the book of Malachi, and you can find out whether or not you love God. So Because there's some test here. God gives the test. God says right here in verse number two, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I mean, it can't be any clearer than that, can it? I have loved you. Now, listen to how they respond. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, that's about as stupid of a question as anybody could possibly ask. Have you ever asked that question to God before? Have you ever said, God, I don't feel like you love me? Because when you say, God, I don't feel like you love me, you're really saying, in what way have you loved me, God? And that reeks of what? It reeks of ingratitude. It reeks of unbelief. I mean, I do that sometimes. I think, oh, you love him, you don't really love me. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that or not. You love them a lot more than you love me. In what way have you loved me like you've loved them? And listen to what he says, how he responds with this great passage that we see quoted in the New Testament. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? God asked that question. And then listen to how he, what the Lord says. He says, yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And I laid waste to Esau's mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. You understand what he's saying right there? I mean, he's saying that, that uh, I chose you and I didn't choose Esau. I mean, I think one of the most hurtful ways in which we can blaspheme the Lord as believers is to question his love for us. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. God says, you can't question my love for you. I chose you. 
Esau might can question my love for him, but you can't question my love for you because I chose you. And they say, well, in what way have you loved us? In what way? That's why he didn't have to say anything else. Read from Genesis to Malachi. In what way did God love them? I mean, I mean, he created them to start with. He created the universe in which they lived. He called Abraham out of the pagan world and, and made a nation out of Abraham. And, and uh, Jacob, being one of those patriarchs, that's why he says, Jacob, I have love. I chose Jacob. And in choosing Jacob, I chose you. And, and, and uh, not only did he choose them, he loved them. They were the apple of his eye. They've always, they're still the apple of his eye. And why did he choose them? Because they were better than other people? That's what they got to thinking. He chose them because he loved them. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because you're better than Joe Blow across the street. He chose you because he loves you every day. We need to thank God that he chose us and loved us enough to die for us. I mean, here's Jacob. Jacob is symbolic of all the children of God. Esau is symbolic of all the children of the devil, the children of this world. And, and uh, uh, God loves his people, but he's at enmity with the Edomites. He was at enmity with Esau. He's at enmity with this world. And, and what's the future fate of Israel? Well, we see that in Revelation. We saw that in the rest of the minor prophets. Their future, their future fate is glory. The Messiah is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, and they're going to be part of that whole kingdom. And what's the future fate of the Edomites? Well, they, they became a desolate wilderness. Not only physically, but spiritually. God gives us his glory. He makes us rich in his glory. He makes us rich in, 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 our, in the future promises that he gives us. But what do the heathen get? They get a desolate spirit and a desolate life. I mean, like I say, if anybody had the right to, to complain about it, you know, being loved, it would be the Edomites. But Paul answers that question, you know, when you say, is that fair? Is it fair that you would hate uh, Esau? Remember what Paul said? He says in Romans chapter 9, but indeed, but indeed, old man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? I mean, he loves the vessels of wrath. But he knew when he formed them, they were never going to get saved in his, in his foreknowledge because they were never going to make that choice. He knew you would make the choice, so you were ordained, uh, predestined before the foundation of the world. And, and he goes on, and, he's, and that he might make known the riches of his glory, on the vessels of mercy, the vessels he's chosen that receive mercy. Not the better vessels who are better in and of themselves, but the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. The Israelites were prepared for glory by the faith of Abraham. They were called and chosen 
by grace and through faith. Abraham received that grace and they became a chosen nation. They, they didn't merit any of that grace. No, no more than you and I merit any of the grace that God gives us and yet he's chosen us for glory. And not only that, he died for them and he died for me and you. He died for the sins of this whole world. But only those who receive Christ have a future and a hope based upon his death on the cross. What do we deserve? We deserve hell. So anytime we get to feeling bad, like, Lord, you don't really love me. Oh, yeah, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, contrast to that, to the future of the people who aren't chosen by God. Listen, look at verse number four. Even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. You know what God says? I'm going to knock them down. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw, I will throw down. They will be called the territory of wickedness. People who don't know God are wicked. We were wicked before we knew God. Why do we know God? Because the Father drew us to Jesus Christ. That's by grace and by his mercy. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation, for, you know, for a few years, forever. I mean, that's exactly, remember when John the Baptist was talking about the gospel, uh, he said, uh, whosoever believeth in the Lord, uh, he'll be saved. But if, he do, if you don't believe, then the wrath of God abides. Uh, that person that doesn't believe, the wrath of God abides on him. It lives on him. How long does it live on him? Forever. And so the fate of the Edomites, the fate of Esau, the fate of the people, and again, the Edomites are a type of wicked people. The fate of the wicked people is, is, the, is the wrath of God. They're doomed forever. How have you loved me? We all deserve to be doomed forever. How have you loved me? Lord, you pulled me out of the pit. You pulled me out of hell. You set me on solid ground. You gave me faith to believe in Jesus Christ. You saved me. That's how, if he didn't do anything else, man, we got plenty of reasons to know that God loved us or still loves us. So, uh, I mean, the, the Edomites, the wicked, hey, their, their, their fate isn't as good as the Israelites. But God's going to save the Gentiles. God, we're Gentiles. We're not Israelites. He's not going to save the wicked, those who are chosen for wrath, those vessels of wrath. But he's going to save a, a remnant of the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Uh, you remember when Paul was in Jerusalem and, and uh, uh, he went to the temple and uh, he made, gave his testimony and, and everybody was receiving his testimony and listening to him until he said, hey, there are going to be Gentiles who are going to receive the gospel too. And then, they, then they, 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 uh, there was a riot and they had to break up the riot or Paul would have been killed. Because the Jew didn't want to hear that the Gentiles were going to be saved. But there is going to be a, the Jews are going to, the Jews are going to be saved. A remnant of the Jews are going to be saved. And the Gentile church made up of Jews and Gentiles is going to be saved. Look at verse number five. He says, your eyes shall see it. And you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. 
Not only does God love Israel, he loves the church. He loves the Gentile and Jewish church. Now, we come to verse number six, and he asks another question. He asks it to the people, and he asks it to the priest, and he's going to get another sarcastic answer from him. Listen to what he says. He says, a son honors his father. He says, look, I love you. I love you like a father loves his son. Hey, maybe you don't see it that way, but at the very least, see it this way. I love you like a good master loves his slave. Look at it that way if you want to look at it as a father and son. And, and he says, as a, and, and if a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then, if then I am the father, where is my honor? I mean, if you really love, I love you, and if you really respect me because I love you and I've given you all this grace, I'm your father, I'm like your master, then sh- where's the love coming back to me? He said, where's, my, where's the honor coming to me? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence, my respect? I mean, God is the master of all things. He's the Lord of all things. We should revere him. We should respect him. We should honor him, says the Lord of hosts. To you, priests who despise my name, he says these things. Yet you say, watch this, sarcastic answer. I think it was a sincere sarcastic answer. In what way have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? I mean, show me how you, we don't see it that way. Well, you, you see it that way, but you really don't know us like we know ourselves. You don't, you don't see it like we see it. You see it wrong, God. That, that's really what they were saying. And so the Lord's going to tell them how they despised his name. Look at verse number seven. You offered defiled food on my altar. But then you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is blemished. It's contemptible. That's how he gives the answer. By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. How was the table, how did, was, what did it mean the table of the Lord was contemptible to the priest and to the Jewish people? It means it's become mundane to them. And so instead of being really sharp and putting out the best showbread, they put out their stale bread. And, and uh, they really didn't have a reverence for the holy things of God. And in doing that, it's as if they were saying, I don't love you. I don't honor you. I don't revere you. We do that today with the Lord's Supper. You know, Paul warns us about taking the Lord's Supper over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in an unworthy manner. Uh, and i got to be careful with that myself. i got to tell you. I mean, for a pastor, Brenda tells me on Saturday night, you remember the Lord's Supper tomorrow? Oh, no. <laughs> now, that means i got to prepare a little message for the Lord's Supper. i got to... You know, she's got to get up here and get all the elements ready and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, she's going to be going in a different car. And I'm all doing all of this kind of stuff. I got to be careful with that. But then I come to church and I see everybody's excited because, oh, we're getting out early. And I say, oh, we're fixing to do the Lord's Supper. And I say, 
Oh, no, not again, you know, on the faces of some people. I mean, I think if we're honest, I mean, I mean, if you're really hungry and you're sitting here, at, you know, 12 o'clock and then I say, oh, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. It really, I, 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 human nature says, oh, man, let's, let's get out of here. Let's do it next week or something. And whenever we belittle the Lord's Supper, when we make it something less than what it truly is in our hearts, we don't put it in the place of importance it should be, then we're doing the same thing these priests and Israelites were doing. We're, it's the table of the Lord is contemptible to us. And, man, we got to be really careful with that because Paul warns us. That's the reason some of you are sick and dying in the church because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I've got to tell you, when we pull out those elements, it behooves us to take that very, very seriously. There's times I do, and I'm sure most of you, there's times you do. There's Still on Saturday night when Brenda reminds me, it's like, oh, no, I wish you had told me that Friday or something, you know, <laughs> or I'd remembered it myself that the first of the month we do the Lord's Supper. And we do it every month because we believe it's that important. I remember when I was in the Baptist church, we did it once a quarter. But we do it every month, and some people do it every week. Some churches, they do it every week. But, but the danger is, which should never be a danger, but the danger is it becomes mundane. It becomes contemptible, contemptible in our eyes. We, we, we really don't want to do it. We've been doing that. We keep doing it. We keep doing it. And then all of a sudden, you're just going through the motions. Man, that's, Jesus didn't go through the motions for us, did he? He hung on a cross, and, and his body was broken, and, and we need to take the Lord's Supper very seriously. But we need to be serious about what we offer up to the Lord, too, in our lives, in our time, in our money, in our service. God takes that very seriously, too. Look at the next, next. I need to do this one on Sunday morning. <laughs> I remember doing it back at the church I was pastoring before, and the offerings went up $9,000 that month. <laughs> they died back down, but it, it made its point. So maybe Sunday, I'm just going to say, we're going to Malachi chapter, actually we're going to do the whole book here. Listen to what he says here in verse number 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? You know, what he's saying is, it shows you don't care. And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Because it shows you don't care. Would you offer that to your governor? Oh, yeah, if he had let us, but he wouldn't let us. God lets us. We want to give him a crummy offering. We can give him a crummy offering. You give a government a crummy offering and you'll go to jail. Speaking of that, April the 15th is coming around the corner here pretty quick. Would he be pleased with you? No, he wouldn't be pleased with you. He'd put you in jail. Would he accept you favorably? No, he wouldn't, says the Lord of hosts. I'm not just a governor, he says. I'm the Lord of hosts. I mean, we pay our bills with money. We, we I mean, good dollars. We, we pay our taxes with money. We buy things with our money. We save a little bit, and then some of us, you know, we, we give the Lord a little if he's lucky, a little of our leftovers. That's not the way it ought to be. What does the Lord think about that? 
he thinks you don't, whoever, not you, I don't want to say you as if I'm trying to, you don't really care. I sure enough, I'll look at somebody and they'll say, you were talking to me. <laughs> we don't really care. And if we take the name of the Lord like the Israelis did, like we do, and then we don't really pour out any of our life to the Lord, it's like offering up a blind cow. It's like offering up a lame sacrifice. You know, I have to be really careful. I mean, like we gave Winford and them 23 chairs and I went around and picked all the chairs that had stains on them. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I can't really say, wow, we really gave them a great offering. Uh, we gave that offering to the Lord because we gave a blind cow to them. Actually, they were really appreciative then. They, the stains weren't really that bad. But, but I think sometimes we think some of the things we're doing or some of the things we give are uh, offerings to the Lord. We're helping the poor and we give them our rags, clothes we don't want to wear anymore. It's like, you know, giving a blind cow to the Lord. When God calls us to do something, and I'll tell you what, he's called all of us to, in, this, in this service. God has a plan for all of us. He has something he wants us all to do. Every single day we get up. We're to serve the Lord wherever God placed us. And when we don't serve him with our very best, then it's like sacrificing a blind cow. You know, you can apply this to any part of your life. I mean, if I sit there and I watch TV for four or five hours and then, oh, man, I think maybe I ought to pray, you know, for 15 minutes. It's like, that's like offering the Lord a lame cow. And really what I'm saying when I do that, I'm saying, Lord, I don't really care about you as much as I care about my entertainment. And I'm not saying entertainment's wrong. I mean, sometimes we've got to all be entertained. But I tell you what, when we're making our offerings up to the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, are we offering blind cows and lame cows? Or are we offering them our very best? And I tell you what, when we don't do that, when we don't offer the Lord our very best, we miss out on the favor of God. God wants to bless us so much in our lives. And I, I'm talking mainly here spiritually, but I believe also materially too. I mean, we're going to see later on, you know, the Lord said, test me on this. You know, you know open, up, open up the storehouse and pour your gifts in and see if I don't send a windfall your way. But, but when we don't, we don't, I say this over and over again, we don't give to get, but because we give, we get. We get the blessings of God. What we sow is what we reap. And if we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. That's, that's New Testament. Everybody says Malachi is Old Testament. No, Malachi is, that word Malachi, like I said earlier, is just as alive today as it was back when it was written uh, 400 years before Christ came here. And when, we, and when we don't give God our best, we miss out on God's favor. Let's look at verse number 9. But now entreat God's favor, he says, that he may be gracious to us. How do we entreat God's favor? By giving him our best. By truly showing God that we love him. 
with the best that we have. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Yes, he will. But see, the Israelites didn't take their devotion to the Lord seriously. And so the fires of the altar were lit, but they were lit in vain because there wasn't any fire in their hearts. God wants the fire in our hearts. When we come to do the Lord's Supper, he wants us to have fire in our hearts, a passion for him burning. When we give, he wants us to have a passion. God loves a cheerful giver. When we serve, he wants us to have passion in what we do. He wants us to give him our very best. And, and to be devoted to him as a father and as a, as a master. Look at verse number 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, the Lord says. Because there's no fire in your heart. There's fire in the altar, but there's no fire in your heart. Your heart doesn't match what you're doing. And what you're doing doesn't match what you should be doing. But there's coming a day, and we've seen this in the rest of the minor prophets, and here's where he's going to do a little bit of prophecy right here. There's coming a day when the name of the Lord's going to be honored. There's coming a day when the people who are on this earth are going to be people who love the Lord, who give their very best to the Lord. Look, look what he says in verse number 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name. Prayers will be offered. Incense is a picture of prayer. And a pure offering. The pure offering is Jesus Christ. For my name shall be great among the peoples, among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. There's a day coming. There's a day coming. The Lord's name is, is, is being trampled upon by the people of this earth right now, by the Edomites, by those who are like Esau, those who are wicked, those who are going to die wicked. But that's not going to be forever. There's coming a day when, when uh, uh, the Lord's name is going to be great. Now, think about that. Should you and I wait for the millennium, for the, us to honor the Lord and to make his name great, at least to us in our lives, in our church, in our families? No, we shouldn't wait for the millennium. I tell you what, if you've got to wait for the millennium to do that, you're probably not going to be in the millennium. I mean, all of us fail at this. I mean, I know I do. You might not, but I, I fail at giving the Lord my best. But I know he deserves the best. And I look forward to that day when, when, when he's honored as he should be honored. And, but these Israelites, I mean, even after... 70 years in a brutal captivity that God nurtured them and kept them like he did when they were in bondage in Egypt. Didn't let, let them be destroyed, but, he, you know, he put them through those 70 years to teach them some lessons. And they come out of there and they come right back out just like they went in. They come right back out with hearts that are distant from the Lord. But you profane it. My name is what he's saying. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. 
And you see where he's, and, and he really describes that better in verse 13. You also say, oh, what a weariness. Weariness. We're sick of the Bible. We're sick of the law. We're sick of the Lord's Supper. We're sick of the sacrificial system. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And instead of giving me your best, you bring to me your stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? No. No, I'm not going to accept that offering. But cursed be. Boy, now this is serious. You, if you give the Lord your best, then you're going to find favor in the Lord's sight. You rob the Lord, and you're going to be cursed in your life. I don't care if you're a believer. You're going to be cursed. He says, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male. He's got money. He's got time. And he pretends to be a Christian. He takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Do you understand the Lord says who I am? Do you really believe in me? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is to be revered, feared among the nations, especially among the Israelites especially among the church. The Lord is the king of kings. He's your father. He's your creator. He's your savior. And his name should be feared. And that's not just in the millennium. That's the way it should be now. I mean... When we give the Lord the crumbs of our life, lives, we profane his name. We have given him blind cows and blemished offerings. And we hold back the favor of God on our lives. Now, you might be the richest man in the world, but that doesn't mean you've got the favor of God in your, on your life. The favor, of our God, the favor of God on our lives is measured by our relationship to the Lord. How close we are to the Lord. He is our exceedingly great reward like he told Abraham. God, help us. Help us to honor the Lord in all that we do and say. For the rest of our lives especially those of us that are part of this church let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we just thank you for this frank rebuke you give to your people one of those passages that cuts Lord especially if we're not taking our relationship as seriously with you as we should. And I think all of us fall into that category to some degree. Father, help us to give you the very best of what we have. and Find your favor in our lives, Lord, where it's missing. 
be full of your Holy Spirit. To have ministries and service in the area you've placed us in that, that have an impact on those around us. Lord, help us not just squander the life you've given us. Helpful to help us to be watchful. Help us to see how time, how short the time is we have left on this earth to honor you and to revere you. Lord, and we look forward to that day when your name is honored on this earth and fully in our hearts. And that's a grace too, Lord. And we ask for that grace even now that, that you would you would help us to turn our eyes from this world and look fully upon you and serve you and honor you as we should. Help us, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.